You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Protea Machining. And this week, I am very happy to welcome back Joe Roganbuck. Joe, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing very well. Oh, I'm super happy to have you back. For anybody who hasn't heard his past episodes, if you want to hear his backstory, head on back to 76. And the last time I had him on was 136. So Joe, it's been 18 months since you've been back on. How is everything going? And what do you have new? Well, so we spoke in something like March of 22. And at that time, I had just, I think, I think I had just moved the operation of Cobra Frame Building, my business, into a shop that I had been, I felt like the stars aligned and I was able to purchase a building from retired machine shop owner in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so, uh, 3,800 square foot building. 200 amps of 480 volt three phase power, two bathrooms, like just a, a excellent space that I tricked the banks into giving me a mortgage for. So I had just done a lot of work. I was working like double time running my business and then, you know, being sort of like a general contractor doing floors and walls and electricity and all that stuff to get the space ready to move in. And then we had moved in, we were getting started in that space. So that was the last one. And after that, I released a couple products. You know, I do these, you know, obviously listeners could check out previous episodes, but just as a brief thing, I make tools, a lot of which are like multi-part assemblies that are for bicycle fabricators. And so I'll design in CAD and refine and then actually do the marketing. And we ship direct to our customers, all these, you know, welding fixtures and mitering fixtures and a tube bender and stuff for make people who make titanium and chromoly you know, custom bicycles, small scale artisan builder type people working out of their backyard shop a lot of times. So anyway, around that time, I released a fork fixture for making a fork. And then a couple months later, I released a, we call it the stay slayer. So it's like seat stays and chain stays or the rear, upper and lower, you know, paired tubes of the bike. And so it's just for mitering either end of those tubes, you know, throw it on like a Bridgeport manual mill and make the cuts and then you get a nice fit up and you can weld it up. So anyway, that was something I released around that time. And, and yeah, last summer was, I really, it's like, I had to kind of backtrack a little bit with my business. I had an employee for a year and a half and probably I was a little over-invested into my building and maybe also <laughs> the just the seasonality of things. And it was becoming a little bit hard to afford to have an employee and to keep him busy. And so Zach, who had been working for me, ended up working at his friend's guitar shop. He, he came from being a luthier. And so he went back to doing that and, you know, I keep in touch some, but so that I worked for like then a whole year just by myself, you know, after a year and a half of having an employee. And then I went back to, you know, packing all the boxes and all the anodized runs and all of the customer interactions and all that stuff myself. And, and then I got hit with a surprise, enormous tax liability, which I also had to work through. So that was a, that was, <laughs> that was a time. But anyway, I did That's all that. that was, yeah. Why? Well, it was funny. Cause like the number that I had to pay that I was kind of surprised about, I was like, holy cow, which I guess if there's a moral there, it's just that, you know. Don't assume that your accountants are totally on top of things. They're not necessarily. And that when you start to run a business, you know, like a little like whoopsie can be hell of a lot of money, you know? So anyway, it's just, it really, 
all these uh, s- small business entrepreneur people that I know who come from their love of the work, they always say things like, oh, you know, like my wife covers the books or like, I'm not really that interested in that stuff. And just, you know, word to the wise, like take an active interest in that because like it, it's pretty relevant to what you do. Yeah. So anyway. Well, like things like estimated tax payments are not part of most people's experience. And it's only yeah. once you start growing a business that you realize like, oh, these are things that real businesses do. And they reconcile their books every quarter so that they're making these tax payments so that you don't get hit with something crazy at the mm-hmm. end of the year. And it's yeah, uh, it sure. can be very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in my situation, I didn't feel like I was being especially careless. I did have hired accountants. I, you know, paid them money to do things for me. I would try to get them the documents and whatever when they needed them. They had filed for an extension at tax time because they weren't, I mean, not like I got them all the documents at the beginning of January, but like they had filed for an extension in April. And and when I asked them about like, oh, is it going to be a penalty or something? And they like took a glance at it and they said, you should be okay, which was not the case at all. So not only did I have to pay a bunch of money like months into the year to like kind of get caught up to where I should have been, but because with the prior year's estimated tax payments, I would have been okay if I would have at least paid everything by April 15th, but I didn't even realize that I had to pay more until like it was August by the time they finished my tax return. And Later, I realized like they had some cybersecurity thing. And like, I think that whole organization who I fired, I think they had a lot of stuff kind of going wrong at their organization. And maybe that partly explains why they bodged mine so much. But I feel like I pretty much did everything they asked me to. And they suggested kicking the can down the road and it created a lot of big issues for me. But at the end of the day, the majority of the money that I had to owe was like money that I legitimately owed the government. And so I paid it and it's done and it's taken care of. And I moved on. But anyway, not like they really care to talk about my personal finance that much, but just to other business owners, there's maybe a lesson there. So yeah, it's, it's a word to the wise. Like we fired our accountants and tax people two years ago now, I think. And this lot, we still, still haven't found an accountant. So I've been reconciling all the books and doing that stuff. But we found new tax people this last year and they are stellar. Like I didn't realize how much I was missing until we found these people. And like they're all about preventive maintenance on your taxes. And, you know, we meet with mm-hmm. them once a quarter and they kind of look at our numbers and say, hey, you might want to start spending money. You might want to start doing this. You know, you can do this to start offsetting you're having a good year, you know, start offsetting that stuff. Yeah. And having someone who is looking forward like that is such an ally to have on your side. And I didn't realize that that was something that was even out there until we found them. Yeah, I have. I was walking my dog after all that stuff blew up and I saw this neighbor guy down the street and like, you know, owns a building down the street from my shop building. And I asked him if he had an accountant recommendation and I've been going there and they're great. It's like this older guy and his assistant. And when I walk into the office, it smells like they've been chain smoking cigarettes the whole time. And they got like paperwork (laughs) everywhere, but they are on top of their stuff and they're really friendly people. And they always say, oh no, bring the dog in. And then they spoil her with treats. And they're just like, they're really old school. Like they always mail me everything. And they're just really on top of stuff. Like he had said that I should get a S corp election. Uh, like the first time that I met him, he's like, I think you're ready for that. You probably could have done that last year actually. And then 
And then like a couple of weeks later, I got a thing in the mail and it was like, he, he had all the paperwork ready and I just had to sign it and put it in the envelope and put a stamp on it. And, uh, it, yeah, he's just really on top of stuff. And like, he actually listens and has the follow through, you know, like, I don't really know that much about it. I'm trying to, trying to be responsible and take interest. But a- anyway, yeah, for people who have their businesses, it's really important to keep looking until you find that good fit. Totally. So, so yeah, to recap, that all happened, but we've got more. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff. Uh, I felt like in that year, it was about from summer to summer, you know, about a year, 13 months or something that I was working alone in my shop, which is kind of nice. Cause you know, like when you have an employee, unless you, that's the end game is to just have lots of employees build a business and like maybe sell it or something. There's pros and cons because partly it's nice to have people help you get the work done and then partly it's like you just gave yourself a second job you didn't used to have any managing to do in a sense and now you have a bunch to do and you're responsible for more people and like you know you go from being the lead technician in your enterprise to now you're also manager and there's a whole lot of traps that come with that. And it's just like kind of a hard thing. So I think when I went back to solo, I was like really embracing it too. Like, oh, wow, I have all this freedom. You know, if I want to bop out in the afternoon and go to lunch, like if I can afford it is really the question. You know, if I have the time to do it and the money to do it, it's like really not a matter. It doesn't concern anyone else. There's a freedom I hadn't felt for a while. So anyway, I was just kind of enjoying that for a while. And it was pretty obvious that I couldn't keep doing that forever. There's just too much work and too much opportunity cost that there was like stuff that I wasn't developing and whatever. So anyway, um, had been intending to hire somebody again for a while, but feeling a little like daunted about that. Cause you know, it didn't go, it did and not everything about it worked perfectly the first time. So you're like, you have some reservations and then I always wanted to get, so this is the other thing is that like in February I discovered this used subspindle live tool y-axis lathe the 2012 Dusan puma 2100sy and i was so tempted and i ended up buying it and i kind of i was like i was like pretty sure i was like probably hire somebody first that's probably the order of operations here because i figured if i get the machine it's quite a lot of money invested and a hell of a lot of time invested before you even start to make money let alone like start to like you know get a return on your investment and but I just wanted it. And I was like, you know what? Eyes wide open. I'm doing this. So I did that in February. I started the deal. The machine finally showed up in April. And yeah, I felt like it took me a couple months to really like integrate that thing into my workflow. I'm still really just kind of scratching the surface with that amazing machine. And then, and then did that for a while. And then more recently, the, the most recent big update, I think is that I yeah hired somebody and that's going really, really well, like the last three weeks or so. Awesome. Yeah, both the second single employee and seeing the the new lathe. Like you had been talking about getting a new lathe maybe since your first episode. Yeah. So uh, super pumped when because I think you reached out. You're like, I'm going to look at this. I'm not sure about it. And then you you're like, Oh man, I went and saw it and it looks great. And the guy's super knowledgeable and has all the manuals and yada. You know, you seemed so psyched about it. And uh, yeah, I was just super pumped that it it all seems like it's working out so well. Yeah, I think as long as I've been watching, I don't know, like Jay Pearson videos and some other places where people would kind of give you a look behind the curtain, maybe some Grimsmost before you see like a subspindle lathe. I mean, 
the milling and the lot the y-axis and that's all really cool but the subspindle i think is like the most mesmerizing thing ever to me that you can do a part transfer and i think there's a lot to be said for single piece flow where like you know like my old two-axis lathe which is pretty damn incredible for what it is but like that machine you get a whole pile of op one before you finally switch over the jaws and all this stuff and then you can start running op two and you know, that's never my milling workflow. I always have finished parts coming off pretty fast. I never do a whole pile of op one and then do a setup changeover to get to where I start making finished parts. And on the lathe, I pretty much only run subspindle transferred bar work. And so like, you know, as soon as you run the first part, you have like a finished part and almost all the parts that I make on that are stainless. And so when they come off, like I don't do passivation or nickel plating or any other post-processing so or heat treating or whatever you would do. So basically, like if I need a part to ship an assembly, which is one of the inherent issues of shipping assemblies, is that you can have 99% of it on the shelf. But if you're missing one piece, right, it's really frustrating. So anyway, if I need one piece, I can do the setup on the lathe and I can make that part. And then now it's running unattended, but I also have the piece I need for my assembly. It's like... That's pretty nice as compared to like on the old lathe, it'd be, it'd be like set up the lathe, which takes a while because the old lathe without a touch setter or collets or anything is like three jaw chuck. Finally, you get, you know, okay, now it's running op one, then you got to do an op two, and then you might have to do a milling op, and then you probably have to do a fiber laser to mark it because it's all these interchangeable pieces that are maybe labeled for size. And so it's like, you're like two, three, four setups in before you have a finished part. It could be like a whole afternoon with other interruptions by the time you have your part to to ship an assembly whereas now like some of these parts for instance it's a bar in the main spindle and it's a finished part that doesn't need laser etch because it got engraved with the live tooling and it's spit out and you know at this point i have to write all the programs over again but when i go to finally come around again and rewrite rerun it might be a 15 20 minute setup or who knows like get it as fast as I can. That's kind of the big question for me with that machine is, um, can I make it work for my low volumes in spite of the inherently slow and frustrating setups on those machines? Right. Yeah. I know I keep watching all your stories of, you know, I think you had one yesterday where you had to remove the subspindle collet to even get to touch off an opposing drill, which was yeah, both funny and, you know, definitely a little bit cringeworthy. You're like, Ooh, that, that yeah. is tight. Oh. It's so nutty you, you how mentioned your, tight it is. Yeah. So you mentioned your old lathe. Is its days at Cobra Frame Building numbered? Or are you thinking you'll just keep it because you got the room and why not? Yeah, that's kind of my thinking right now is it's funny because, you know, for years and years I was so space constrained and I'm just really not right now. And I hate to say that because I know how much that hurts for everybody to hear, who, many of whom are space constrained. but. That just stopped being an issue for me. I have like 3,800 square feet and it'd probably be quite a while before I pack that tight. The lathe, my old lathe is a 1996 Clausing Storm 100A. It's a great machine, especially for what I paid for it. And I do have existing programs and jaws and tooling to run every turned part I've ever made on it. Maybe I could sell it for like five grand or something. Like it is, it is a known working machine with tooling and tool holders and a proven fan fusion post processor. So, you know, maybe I can get five ten for it, but like, I'm not going to get a ton of money for it. And it's really, 
it's use like I don't have a manual lathe and I kind of wish that I did. But it's like it's kind of useful for like quick and dirty stuff sometimes where like I don't know that you know I don't have every single size of QG65 collet for that new lathe although I have a hell of a lot of collets now I bought a lot of collets but um I don't have them all yet or if I ever needed to do something I guess I have a three jaw chuck for the Puma but like I'm never going to mount that I'm never going to take off the collet chuck so if I had to do some big plate quick and dirty job I would at least be able to hold it on my old lathe and the three jaw so yeah, if I was more space constrained, I would be pretty motivated to get it out of there or possibly in, you know, like if the right person comes along and it's really going to change their life and I want to see that person succeed, then that would be compelling to me. I'd say, okay, yeah, like let's work out a price and get it on a trailer and get it onto you and you can make some cool parts. But right now it's, I'm happy to keep it. Yeah, that's totally fair. So what about buying a subspindle lathe? Lessons can you learn us? Um, you had seen all these people run them for years, but I imagine jumping into it with both feet, having only a single spindle, no live tooling lathe experience beforehand, you've had to learn pretty quickly. So, so what can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, shouts out to Easton, uh, because not only has Easton been very helpful to me over the many years, like the three or four years I've been asking him lathe questions. He's the, the, the turning resource for all of us, it seems (laughs) because yeah, not only has he been helpful to me, but like most people that I talk to, they're like, man, Danny Rudolph really helped me with this or Easton helped me with this. It's like, it's always the same two or three people that, cause the thing is people might not realize is that there's a lot of milling content on the internet and you can learn from watching YouTube videos and reading forums and turning just doesn't have nearly as much resource base out there. And it's maybe fundamentally simpler in some ways, or like once you have a little familiarity, then it like it all kind of falls into place and you just got to keep chipping away at it. And maybe there's like less to communicate. About. I don't know, but like the whole world of ISO turning tools with the V's and the B's and the V's and all the different alphabet soup of those W yeah. style, yeah, all yeah. that C's stuff. C's and V's and yeah, uh-huh. uh, just everything. It's just a mess. And I'm not, not a fan of the complexity. And anyway, there's just like, I really like turning anyway. I don't know where I was going with that. My old lathe didn't even have a touch setter or a parts catcher, rigid tapping. And the main reason you said been talking about replacing that lathe as long as we've been talking, but the main reason is that the old one had an inch and five eighths through bore, 42 millimeter through bore, which is not big enough for my parts. The new one has a 65 millimeter, you know, like two and a half inch bar capacity. That is, I think, enough to do anything for, you know, bike stuff that I'm ever going to do which really just dictate like bicycles only have tubes of so big. And so you just need to make pieces that mate with those tubes and bicycles change over the years, but I don't suspect that I'll need to be able to do larger than two and a half inch diameter work anytime soon for that stuff. But who knows maybe, but yeah, the old one was just too small. And the big question I always had with these machines, first of all, they're very expensive. So just, you know, you have to calculate the return on investment relative to the investment. So just because like, you know, a $600,000 Akuma Maltus or something would be like, oh yeah, I could definitely use that. But it's like, can I actually make money with it? <laughs> so anyway, the other question is just the setups. Like these machines, like the live milling isn't that good. The access to your tool holders and your your tight spaces between the turret and the subspindle 
and all of that. It's just very limiting. You have low RPM, low horsepower with the live tools. The surface finish is just not so good. The live tool holders, you need to buy one for each live tool and they set up slowly and they have a limited number of hours that you can run those like bevel gears before they wear out or whatever. So yeah, this just comes with a lot of, it's like you're, you're paying a hell of a lot to get a little bit of milling on your part. And, and then the big question for me was just like, I'm never going to run more than a couple hundred or something at once. And most jobs I'm running like 20 pieces. And so if you get, for instance, QG 65 collet chuck on the main and the sub spindle, maybe you get some capto tooling or some other kind of quick change tooling on the turret. Maybe you write a really good post processor and you have a good cam template and you like, what are the things that you can do to make, you know, just really documenting everything at the machine with little like notes and things written down. How do you make it so you can set up the machine in a couple minutes? Um, and so anyway, I've been playing with that. It's been tough. Like I knew it was going to be hard, but it's been tough to like, that's just, especially with the fanic control and the complexity of that machine. It's just not, it's not user-friendly to like, just get started making parts. Right. So I, I want to circle back a little bit to the live milling. Cause yeah, we had one question from beige power has the live milling on the lathe gotten any better or is it still underwhelming? So what have you learned about utilizing that to the fullest because a lot of your parts it seems like you really value making gorgeous parts for your fixtures so i would imagine you know having live milling that doesn't produce that surface finish you want you've had to kind of work around it so what, what have you learned about that how have you worked around it what do you use it for even all that stuff yeah well so I'm very novice with all this and I don't want to blame the machine or the hardware. You know, it's the machine, but it's also the tool holder and all that stuff. I'm sure there's a lot I can do to do better with what I have just by like, you know, like when you have even like people joke about Haas as being lightweight, but like a 40 taper VF series Haas machine has got a pretty damn nice spindle compared to these, <laughs> like my lathe has BMT 55. Like it's not even close. Like I think a Bridgeport will give you better surface finish and rigidity. Um, oh, than, <laughs> than what you get from these. And I don't know, like there's, I've seen some YouTube videos. There's, uh, I think EDC machining or something is this sort of job shop account that I follow. And they have like a high feed mill on a Haas ST 25 Y or something. And they got like two inch round bar hanging five inches out of the chuck and they're just plowing the material off. Like it's a, yeah, it looks like a high feed mill. That's like a radial cutter. I don't know how they're pushing it that hard. So I think that there's a lot to know about these machines that I haven't figured out yet. And I don't always know who to ask, but well, like, I'll for instance, jump in and say that like even Easton, who you said you've learned so much from, it has so much experience. He's cautioned to me and other people about, you know, how lackluster live tooling milling can be multiple times. Like we've talked about it a ton. So I, I don't think it's just you. It seems like it is kind of a, a limitation yeah. of, you know, having a little, bevel gear spindle you know yeah. trying to do this stuff like i imagine right. it's like trying to build a datron with a dremel mm -hmm. as the spindle yeah. instead of hsk taper and the live tooling motor is really noisy so like mine goes to 5000 rpm and you know i'll run it like three to five depending on i mean most of the tool pads i could max out for rpm as you know it's a small diameter tool to have a lower cut pressure usually because i don't have much rigidity so, okay, I'd, even in stainless, I could probably run 5,000 on like a quarter inch tool a lot of times. And, you know, you're just not, anyway, it doesn't, it's noisy to listen to and you got all these issues. But I mean, another big thing for me is like the clearance. I have these 
QG 65 collet chucks. And I got a sick deal on those, by the way, but eBay, eBay score of, of the lifetime. It was like two collet chucks and 15 collets and the collet changer gun. And it was like four grand. (laughs) It was like $15,000 worth of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And word to the wise, if you want Royal quick grip collet chucks, and you buy them used, there's the draw tube thread adapter that, you know, like the draw tube pushes and pulls through the spindle to actuate the chuck. And they're specific to machines. I'm sure there's some commonality, but like generally you need a different draw tube adapter or you would need to machine your own. And this is insane, but if you call Royal and you say, hey, I have a used pair of these collet chucks, I'm trying to put them on this new machine, they'll ask you what machine they are. And then they will, they will UPS you new ones, brand new machined pieces for free. And I heard that they did that for Easton. And I was like, that's a fluke. They must have like been in a good mood. And I called them and they did that for me. They UPS them to me. They showed up like two days later, I think. And I was looking at these parts in a box and they're gorgeous. And there's one for the main and one for the sub. And I'm like, if they were charging real money for these, I think these would be like 600 bucks a piece. Like they looked damn good. And I'm just thinking like the only reason that Royal does this, I guess, is to just like get you in on the collets and to like, you know, it's like a customer appreciation thing. Like, thanks for buying this. I didn't even buy it new from them. So anyway, if right. you didn't know that, that's a really valuable thing to know. Cause I was thinking that I was going to spend like a whole day or two, you know, get a billet of steel and like set it up on my Haas and thread mill it. And like, how are you going to gauge the thread while it's on the mill? You got to take it out of the mill. Really? You probably got to build a thread gauge first and like, geez. That's killer. But what a, a cool thing. I mean, the cynic in me is like, oh, they're just doing the printer model. Like they know you got, they got you for life with those expensive yeah. collets, but still to send nicely machined pieces for free. That's it's, pretty insane. It's amazing. And it was packaged really nice. They were in like these plastic bags and they had like the Cosmoline and like it, it was, I was really impressed. I bought some of the, I had a bunch of their collets already. Then Haas had like a summer blowout sale. So I bought some of the Haas compatible ones and those were really good they're all metric but they were really nice and then i bought a couple more from royal and i got like 30 or 40 of those damn collets now i think from royal they're 348 dollars a piece retail which is just nutty and a lot of times (laughs) so you have your main spindle and your sub spindle and a lot of times you're going to use the smallest bar possible on the main spindle to get your finished part and wouldn't you know it a lot of times you need the same collet in both spindles Or you need to step up your bar size and burn like, you know, a quarter inch on diameter or something just so you get to use. And then not to mention, well, you can't really run bar work if you don't have all the trusty cook spindle liners. And those are 275 bucks a piece. And I got like 16 of those. Thankfully, 11 or so of those came with the machine. But it's just, it's expensive, man. (laughs) It's a lot of money tooling these things up. Yeah, no joke. So speaking of spindle liners, didn't you try 3D printing them as well? I did on my old lathe years ago, which was a little different because that's a, it's got a shorter spindle and the spindle bore was inch and five eighths. And so what I did was I made these parts. I drew up in fusion. I don't know if I got the idea from someone else. I can't remember. I did later see Danny Rudolph do nearly the same thing. And I said, you know, great minds think alike, but maybe I saw him do it first and I just don't remember. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's like a scroll shape. It's like your outside diameter fits in the spindle bore. And I did like little fins that were kind of like a scroll shape so that it had some springiness or it was just, I was playing in CAD because it's a shape that I could never really machine. So it was kind of fun to draw it and print it. 
And the 3D printed spindle liners work. Like, it, they just work. You know, like, if you do them right, they work great and they cost you almost nothing. But on this machine, being that, like, it handles, like, much, much heavier bar, like, two and a quarter bar, I don't want to put in a plastic cleave and spin it, you know, 3,000 right. RPM. So, yeah. uh, so, seeing that I already had most of the sizes, I just, I was like, you know what, this, this is like, I think if you had to buy this machine new today, it's like a quarter of a million dollars with the bar feeder and the chip conveyor. It's just nutty. That's crazy. So how are you balancing? Because we, we've talked a ton. You're all about standardizing and making these workflows that make things easy for you to produce smaller quantities. So you, you're not producing these fixtures as like just in time, but as close as you can while still maintaining yeah. some inventory. So how are you balancing wanting to use the smallest bar so there's not a lot of waste? But also being like, oh, well, a standard bar would mean that I just don't have to change out all this stuff. So how does that play in your mind and where is that trade off for you? Well, that's a great question. I, you know, that set of main and yeah, main and sub collet chucks and collets came with a lot of sizes. And so I think like, for instance, in the past, I've bought two and one eighth inch stainless round bars so that I could make parts that cleaned up to two inch and I could have used two inch round bar, but it wouldn't have had such a nice finish. So, so I buy two and an eighth, which is kind of irregular. I'm probably not getting the best price per pound unless I buy a ton of it. I don't know. And I like on my lathe now, I do not have the two and one eighth collet or the two and one eighth spindle liner. And I'm not really planning on buying those. On the other hand, I have an inch and five eighths collet and spindle liner already, and I'm used to buying inch and five eighths. There's a lot of parts that I designed around inch and five eighths because that was the largest bar I could pass through my old lathe. And so and then this week I was, I was going to make a part from inch and five eighths stainless, but I only had a little bit and I had a bunch of inch and three quarter and I was looking at it and then I got a quote for more and it was just not that much of a price difference to justify ordering more to like put, you know, so that I could keep the other one in inventory for six months or something. And so, yeah, that's something I'm playing with is just, and also like getting alternate quotes from vendors and seeing like, you know, like if I buy more stainless at once, how does that really affect the price? And like, well, I don't really want to become like an inventory, but you know, if let's say over the course of a short three months or something, I get like a pretty significant rate of return. Like I bought it, but then in three months it actually saved me like, you know, some hundreds of dollars that I was necessarily going to spend anyway. So I haven't really figured that out yet, but yeah, I think it's, I don't plan on certainly not by eighths of an inch, you know, here in the United States, everything is nominal, like fractional inch. So yeah, like anything over two inches probably going to be by quarters. Well, so let's, let's say this, like, let's say you had it tooled up for two and a quarter bar and you had some parts run across your desk that run from the inch and five eighths. How many parts do you have to be making to where you're like, I'm going to change things out? Is it oh, man. Well, five parts Stainless round bar parts? is really expensive though. So, I mean, if it was like, if it was more than like, I'll, I'll bandsaw stuff to like 36 inches. So if it was more than like two or three bars, I'd definitely just, you know, put another order in. Uh, okay. It would also be a question of lead time, I guess. But, you know, like I have to reprogram it, but that's pretty easy with the fusion templates. There's um years ago, John Saunders got a Haas ST20Y lathe and then he posted video or he didn't post that many videos about it see again us lathe guys are stuck with a minimal amount of content think about all the john saunders videos about milling anyway but he he posted like sort of like an adaptation of that rob lockwood container method but for his lathe 
And so I was always aware of that. And I thought that was a great workflow for turning. And I also, I have years ago adapted, you know, that sort of Rob Lockwood method to my production milling workflow about which I would love to make a YouTube series about all these little things so I could get into the weeds and share that stuff. But anyway, I haven't done that yet. But if you have questions, I can uh, share that stuff with people individually. But anyway, so I, I watched his videos again when I got this lathe and then I built a new model with similar ideas and my own tweaks and new flavors on it and whatever. And it's been, it's been really cool to have that and trying to build that template. Like it's just really hard. Like you got to love how I'm like a mill with a tool changer. Each tool is an independent consideration with no respect for the others. And it just does not work like that on a lathe turret because the tool numbers, first of all, like on my mill, I never renumber any tools ever. Tool four has always been tool four since the beginning of time. It will never change. It's always my Mitsubishi ASX four, four, five face mill. That's it. There's like no confusion. You know, like if I, if I go to run a program on my Haas and that tool is not in the tool changer, I actually, when I pull it out, I'll renumber it like one Oh two or something. And then when it gets to tool four, it'll just throw an alarm. It won't try and cut with the wrong tool. It'll just throw an alarm. It's like a safe failure mode. And I just love how everything is so independent. But on the lathe, you can't always put a boring bar back in the same pocket on the turret because you might have like a different tool somewhere else now. And the boring bar and some other big drill create an interference. And so you got to renumber stuff. And and like internal internal tools are the issue on a lathe because there's really only so many outside features you do. I mean, I guess you could do like skeeving or skiving or whatever that is, or polygon turning, or there's knurling, but generally you're just turning on the outside. So you'd have like maybe a rougher and a finisher and that's about it. But on the inside, you could have drilling, reaming, tapping, you could have boring, you could have ID threading, you could have ID grooving, you could have, you know, drills of all different diameters, boring bars of all different diameters, different relief angles. You might have multi-lengths of the same kind of drill or something, you know, with gun drills. Who knows what? Like the, the ID work on a lathe is the one in my estimation that really, we're just talking static tools here, but like that's the one that really starts to make a mess of your ability to standardize. So like one thing I've done to standardize on this lathe is that I had a couple of these like, um, like drilling style tool blocks, you know, they have like a one inch bore so you could put in maybe like some sort of round tool with a shim or something. And you can also buy what I bought a bunch of is like ER25 one inch straight shank tool holders. You can get those real cheap on eBay for like 20 bucks or something. I bought a bunch of those and they come like seven inches long. And so I just chop them down. And then those become sort of like my poor man's cap dough because like the pockets are all kind of the same size. And then I, the goal is to keep the drill always set up with a collet so I don't have to go looking for a collet and I don't have to go looking for a drill. It's just ready to go and I put it in and then I use the touch setter to set it off again. The numbers might change job to job, but at least setting it up should be relatively straightforward. And one of the nice things about proofing out a program on a lathe is like, let's say your cycle is like three or five minutes. You just got to stand there for like one cycle and then it repeats. Whereas like um, with milling, Sometimes it's just prohibitively long cycle for you to actually babysit it every time. So like you need some way to run, you know, crash detection or something. But usually a cycle on a lathe is, in my experience, pretty short, even on like stainless parts. It's I've never had a part that was like more than 10 minutes. Right. It's not like you can load up a fixture on a lathe and make yeah. multiples at once. Like it, it is a one at a time kind of workflow no matter what, or at least with that kind of lathe. 
I saw the uh, coolest demo when I was at IMTS. That was a thing that happened this last year. And I got to meet you there and we did the Insta Machinist meetup and that was excellent. But when I was at the DN Solutions booth, there was an apps engineer. I wish I remembered his name. I met the Mark Christopher guy who shot the YouTube videos. And I talked to my local sales guy was, of course, there. And I'm sorry, Ryan, that I didn't buy a new Doosan from you, but this was too good of a deal. <laughs> but anyway, there was an apps engineer who had on one of the Lynx 2100SY lathes, he had set up demo and it was the coolest thing. It was like something like one inch diameter, 12 inch long chunk of some sort of red metal. I think it was brass. And anyway, so cycle start makes, uh, you know, the front and the backside features on, but basically he made a two part assembly out of the same bar diameter, but it was like one part and then another part. So it was really, it was kind of like four different programs. It was like main spindle on the one side of the part and then sub spindle of the same part spits it out. And then the next one, and then. And then you take these two parts and you install some O-rings and you thread them together. And what it is, it's like, it's one of those old school goes on the end of your garden hose and you like twist the two pieces against each other and it's a valve. Oh, cool. And you can adjust the fan of the, the water that squirts out of your hose. And then it was engraved with live tools and it had knurling and it said like DN solutions. And I was just mesmerized by the part and I was like complimenting the guy. I'm like, this is the coolest demo I've ever seen. And I get to keep this thing. And it's on my hose. Like I've used it. Like I was like washing outside of my (laughs) shop on the sidewalk. And I was like, I love this part. This is so good. (laughs) That's so cool. I think Williman was doing something. I mean, something similar where it was the same bar and they were running four parts, four different parts, like one of each back to back. And then it would assemble as a vice, a little tiny vice. Single piece flow right there. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a very Williman part. You were like, okay, yeah. You're flexing a little bit on all of us, but all right. <laughs> uh, so Molly No was asking, what's the biggest challenge been with the new lathe? So it would clearances cover that? Is that kind of your biggest struggle no, with this? I would say it's been the Fanuc. And you know what's funny? So as a Fanuc 31i control, which is about the highest spec near, I don't know, it was a pretty high spec control for that era, 2012. It's like clearly a very powerful control and it's like, you know, Fanuc is like really reliable and my old lathe has a Fanuc control and I had run a couple machines that had Fanuc back in like 20, 2017, 2018, when I had a machine shop job for nine months or whatever. And so I was like familiar and I've always heard people bellyache and I, in my head, I'm always like, yeah, get over yourselves. Like, it's not that bad. Like you just learn the control. What do you need to do? Like you need to comp offsets. You need to load a program. You need to maybe do some edits. Like, it's not that big of a deal, guys. Like, in my old lathe, I remember being kind of, like, lost the first couple days, not knowing how to do an RS-232 program transfer, some of those things. But, like, once you learn those and you establish some muscle memory or you write a cheat sheet, there's only, like, four things to learn, right? And so I was just not, I was never afraid of a fanic control other than maybe, like, on a mill for memory limitations. But other than that, I had like no qualms about Fanuc. Like it couldn't be that bad. Get over yourselves. And when I got this and I really started to use it, I was like, boy, was I wrong. And, <laughs> um, and I felt like a little like, wow, I kind of prejudged all these people who, who were bellyaching about it. Cause now I'm the one who wants to bellyache. But I would say the difference is I do think the older like a Fanuc OM or 6T or something like my, my old one is an OT. I think those older ones are maybe a little bit easy, like a little bit easier to use is kind of my impression. I kind of prefer the simplicity of those. 
even though they're like less capable overall, they're just kind of simpler. Like the newer ones, I don't know that I love. Maybe the very newest ones, the IHMI, are maybe they look glossier and shinier and all that. But yeah. anyway, yeah, it's like. But what it's about such a, it is, is a struggle? What, so what's making it's it such a, a complicated machine that you're fighting things like tool clearance and you're trying to learn all this stuff in the first place. And then you have a control that's fighting you. And if it was one on its own, it would be a little bit easier. But like it is a really. Like there'll be, and then, and then add into this, the interdependency between the LNS bar feeder and the machine. So like every day when you start up the machine, before you can really do anything on the lathe, you have to put the bar feeder in either dry run mode, which is deeply hidden in the menus. They don't even mention dry run mode in the LNS manual. So if you ever need to figure that out, let me know. And I'll tell you how it's done on my, uh, quick load 80, whatever it is. But anyway. So that's annoying is like if one machine throws an alarm, they both have an alarm and you need to reset both of them, which, and the thing is like when you're learning a new machine, that stuff happens every two seconds. So like now you have like, and like when I first started, when I first got the machine powered up, I didn't have air to it and it would let me jog it around and all sorts of stuff, you know, so I'm like cleaning it and all these other things, trying to learn it. And I hadn't hooked up air yet. And I spent like hours trying to solve this one alarm. And then turns out that was because I didn't have air. So that's like a bonehead move on my part, trying to use the machine without air. But the alarm it threw said, had gave you no indication that that was the issue. It was like tool fix positions sensor or something. Oh, I, had I to, remember you reaching out about that. You're like, yeah. hey, do you have any idea what this is? And I was like, nope, no, I have no idea. That's a basic FANUC alarm, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So oh, anyway, I, like when you say that that's one of your hangups with Matt Sura is that they have the FANUC, it's like, I have a lot more empathy for that now. I'm like, I get that, you know? And it's like, it's not that you couldn't handle it. You're a smart guy, but it's like, you got better things to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, I have run FANUC machines for more of my career than I haven't, but that doesn't mean that I'm a, a fan. Like, <laughs> yeah, the, whole, uh, stock, the Stockholm syndrome joke. Yeah. Like there aren't actually people who love using FANUC machines. They just have Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. I mean, that rings true. <laughs> it's so cool that they have the parameter manual and you can get in there and customize it and i have gotten really excited about that a couple times and then i'll do the pwe read write thing and i'll go in and i'll change a parameter and and then it doesn't do anything and i'm like well like it's like i need to continue to troubleshoot even after i finally discover the thing that is allegedly supposed to do it then like well there was like another redundant parameter somewhere else then both of them needed to be or i don't know what it is or one of them really frustrating on this lathe is that when you flip down the tool touch setter arm and you want to like, let's say in tool turret position six, you have like multiple drills or something. So one of them is for offset six and maybe one of them is for offset like 18, you know, maybe you take 12 positions on the turret. So you add 12. So the next one around anyway. So yeah. Oh, T0618 would be the offset of the next one. Well, on this machine, when you flip the touch setter down, it won't let you write to any other offset register than the number of the turret position that you're on. And I looked that up and it's really frustrating because it's like a subspindle live tool lathe. So you're going to have tools pointed in both directions and it's Y axis and it's a 24 position turret. So like, come on, give me. (laughs) So anyway, as far as I can tell, even when you find the parameter and you fix it, it will let you write that to a different position. But then the first time after you flip the touch setter back up again, the machine 
in the ladder of the machine is my understanding. It goes and it changes that parameter back again automatically. It's like Doosan didn't want people to be able to write the offsets. To the, this is my understanding. So I need to see if I can get somebody at Doosan to like help me. But like, I'm not going to go change in the ladder of the machine on my own. That seems really dangerous. And so this is what I do is like, I'll, I'll actually take a screenshot of the offset. Like I'll take a picture with my phone and then I'll, I'll like change the one offset. And then I have to go and like rewrite the other one again. And like, like if the whole idea is to keep people from crashing their machines, I'm not sure that this is particularly helping. Yeah, that's super frustrating. My goodness. So any Hopefully fanatic wizards can help who want to like come help me troubleshoot, I'm all, I'm all ears. <laughs> Samuel Hollander asked, how much does setups in a dark, dark machine suck and which light manufacturer doesn't lie about coolant resistance? So I must have missed this. Did you burn out some lights? Well, so when I got that machine, it just had this weird dim LED that had like a very purple cast. And so I've been using it like that, but just this week I finally kind of sniffed out whether that was like 120 volts or 24 volt DC and it was 24 volts. And then I just like Amazon, you know, like IP67 rated coolant or waterproof, you know, LED light strip. And that showed up yesterday and I installed it this morning. And now I have, I could use a little more light, but there's a hell of a lot of light in there now. And it's like this long strip light from above. And like, finally, I feel like it's a safety thing, really, because like now I can actually do a lot more program proofing with the door shut. <laughs> like, I would like to be able to just shut the door, you know? So anyway, yeah, I don't know how long it's going to last. Hopefully it lasts a while. I was kind of surprised, you know, for being like the Amazon cheap one. It was like 180 bucks. I thought that I, I thought I'd be able to find one a little bit cheaper than that. So hopefully it lasts a while. We'll see. Hopefully I can at least replace oh it with the same one again if it fails. Cause like drilling the holes took quite a while to like lay out and yeah, do that. Yeah. Light's so important. Brad and I put up, man, maybe eight or 10 led light. They're like pull lights, basically like light panels in our shop. Mm -hmm. And occasionally we'll turn off just those and see just the lights that we worked with when we first started the shop. And wow. both of us cannot believe that we were able to do any work in there, let alone, you know, actually make precision parts with that kind of like, it feels like you're in a cave and then you yeah. turn them all back on. You're like, oh, this is, yeah, okay. This is how much light I, we'd still like more light. Yeah. <laughs> but I've had that experience. At least it's usable. A couple times where it's like, how did I get by on this amount of light before, you know, like you maybe keep the old light fixtures installed. When I bought that shop building, it was a hodgepodge of all sorts of different Oh, all these fluorescent fixtures that were hung at different heights with extension cords running across the truss work on the ceiling. And it was kind of a mess when I got in there and my plan was to do LEDs. And I, in December, when I bought that building, I met with a bunch of contractors, you know, insulation guy, just to see what I had to work with, ended up not doing any more insulating, you know, just different contractors and people. I did hire someone to paint the walls and another guy to do epoxy floors, but Anyway, I had an electrician come out and give me a quote for lights and he like had a little write up proposal and it had, you know, like a map and the, the can, the foot candles or whatever of the light fixtures. And I was like trying to like get a sense of how bright it was really going to be. Cause it just didn't look like that much light and he wanted, yeah, anyway, I did it for like a small, small fraction of the price. It obviously took me like a day or two to do the wiring and whatever, but 
I use these Amazon super duper cheap LEDs. They're like $20 per eight footer. <laughs> They're like Marina LED something. I did the whole shop for like 1100 bucks in materials and it works great. Nice. The thing is funny when a spindle is ramping up or ramping down, something about the voltage draw, it makes the lights flicker. And on the Haas, that doesn't happen that often, but on the Puma, especially if you have like constant surface speed on, it's like, it's pretty incessant. So I might end up redoing the fixtures for that one reason, but otherwise it's pretty, pretty good. <laughs> we have tons of light. That's awesome. Thomas Hosford asked, why haven't you hooked up TSC on the VF4 yet? Yeah, I don't know. I, I bought that machine and I didn't, I didn't want to never have TSC, but I think that was the right call. When I, I bought that machine just about four years ago, it's been pretty good to me, all things considered. And I got it with the TSC prep with like the rotary union and the hoses. And I think I got a quote from Haas once for through spindle coolant and air blast was going to be like six grand or something. And I was like, geez, man. So I have no idea what the hardware actually costs, but it just seemed like, well, whatever. I was thinking, you know, the air blast thing would be interesting because I see what Uriel and Devin and I assume lots of other people do too with the shunk spindle grippers. And I don't have through spindle coolant or air. I think air is the preferable. So it would be nice maybe to have that. Although I know like Gimbal and some other people now are advertising ones. I'm sure these always existed, but you know, where the airlines are routed separately and that's pretty appealing, but yeah, I haven't felt like I needed it that much for machining because I don't do that much like tough material drilling. It's mostly aluminum and like high speed steel cobalt drills do pretty dang good in aluminum if you have the time and I'm not doing a whole lot of deep drilling and whatever, but yeah, it would. I would be loving it. I'm sure if I had that, if I had the ability to push a 5X or 8XD coolant through drill on that machine would be pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Uriel. He asked, he wanted to hear more about how digging into the post-processor is going. Yeah, I, uh, that's been fun. I don't, have you ever done much of that? I have done a little bit and then I hired someone to do the rest of it because I just don't have time for it. Yeah. I have just enjoyed that. I did a little bit with writing slightly more complicated spreadsheet formulae, for, formulas, whatever. And and then this is, I guess, all JavaScript, and I don't really know what I'm doing. Years ago with the old lathe, I needed to delete a bunch of canned cycles that it didn't have from the stock Fusion Post, and I had to change like a threading address and some other G, G and M codes. I had to just change the numbers around. And so like, I don't know what I'm doing, but... I looked it up recently. John Saunders has like 18 videos related to post-processors. That man is a saint for that. Like that's, that's no small amount of videos relating to post-processors and post-edits really helpful. But yeah, I've been digging into that more and I've been feeling like a king because I'm really getting some good output. And so I'll share with you the coolest one that I did. So like this one I was real proud of, but basically in my template in Fusion and with the post-processor that I edited, basically there's the stock projects from my main spindle a certain distance and I work in millimeters on the lathes. And so it'll be like, you know, 50 millimeters, let's say. And I figured out how to calculate that variable from like data that the post already has and then how to format that and spit that out. So now in my post-processor configurations dialog box, there's like a checkbox if I want to use the LNS bar feeder. And if I do, I click it on and at the top of my program, 
the way you do a bar exchange subprogram call for that bar feeder is you go like rather than doing like a M98 or a G65 subprogram call, the well, what you do is you do a slash two and then you do your subprogram call. So it's like slash two G65 P88 P8998. And then I give it a variable too, because it's a G65. And so what that does for me is that at the top of my program, it calls the R exchange subprogram, but the slash two at the beginning of the block is conditional so that it only calls that subprogram under the condition that it's getting voltage from the bar feeder that the bar feeder can keep track of how long the bar remnant in the spindle is. And when it thinks the bar remnant is short enough that it's in its quote end of bar condition, then it gives the machine voltage. And now the lathe knows this time around it needs to jump into that subprogram. So it does. So I, it took me a long time to figure out how the lathe and the R feeder talk to each other, but that's the main thing is, I mean, they can give each other like e-stop signals and probably some other things, but the main, and I think the bar feeder in my case anyway, it gets, can tell when the lathe chuck opens and closes, but, um, but anyway, yeah. So like if the, if the bar feeder thinks there's no more bar left and it's ready to load another bar, then, then the slash two block will get read in my case that calls a sub program. So the coolest thing is that my post-processor automatically spits out in that line of code, there's a Z variable. And that Z variable, then it goes from my fusion environment automatically by my post-processor, it gets written into my posted code. And then from there, it automatically, when it does the subprogram call, it's a G65 block that gets passed again to the subprogram. So I never have to do any of that human manual data entry. So there's like less room for error. And then maybe the coolest thing too, is that the way that I set up and run a job is that I start by putting the bar feeder in auto mode when I have like a short bar remnant chucked in the lathe in the main spindle. And when you put the bar feeder in auto mode, the first thing it does is it has a pusher and it measures where the remnant is and it immediately recognizes this is too short of a bar. And so that means that when you run the cycle for the first time, it'll just jump straight into that R exchange subprogram. I have to like trick it into thinking that it's an end of the bar condition. And so the first thing it does when I go to set up a job is it loads a new bar and it passes through that variable where I have a turret stop and it pushes against the turret stop to the exact length of stick out that I want. And I don't ever have to do any manual setup stuff. And I was like a little nervous that if I had all these variables pushing through and like, what if something goes wrong and it doesn't spit the variables out right? I want to be there when it does the bar exchange program. I don't want to like, I don't want to be half an hour into a job and I'm like out walking my dog or like in the office or something. And then there's some big crash because the bar feeder didn't run right. So I built it into my routine where you don't start the lathe until you've watched the bar exchange program to make sure that everything is working. And so I felt like that was a pretty safe way to proof it out. And it like, I had the idea for it and I'm like, you could probably do that. And it was a you know Sunday and I was like, I'm just going to get it done today. And I actually got it done and I don't really know anything about JavaScript, but I learned a lot during the day and it was just like, it was deeply satisfying. That's killer. Yeah really seems like it's a large step towards your automation goals. Uh, yeah. I, I was watching your stories when you were kind of implementing it, but I didn't quite understand the full thing until now. And that's, that's really slick. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of it. I would love to just have a YouTube channel where I talked about machining. That'd be fun. I don't know how to like monetize that. Not that it needs to make me money, but it's like whatever I do with my time needs to be able to pay for itself. You know, well, so like you, the YouTube funny enough, you were I, talking about this on your last episode too of yeah. like 
I really want to do a machining channel, but my customers probably wouldn't watch it. So yeah, exactly. I don't know really how, how that helps me advertising wise. And yeah, it's tough. And video production in general is not an easy forever. thing. Yeah. If it was easy, I could understand you being like, oh, I'll dedicate 30 minutes a week to it, whatever. But it's like, no, no, yeah. I need to set up hours of shooting and editing and all that stuff. And so I, I totally understand. Well, and you've been having more YouTubers on too. Like I know that you're very aware of like the amount of work that they put in to do that. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, it's no insignificant task at all. Uh, Last question from listeners. Chief Bub asked, TIG welding, pulse or no pulse? So yeah, I'm not that much of a TIG welder, but I, on my old machine, I had a pulser and I did eventually kind of get used to that. And I liked that for like thin wall bicycle tubing stuff. And then when I bought the building, it came with this beefy late seventies Lincoln welder, ideal arc 300 that has a 375 amp peak output, which is insane. And uh, (laughs) like melt the sun with that thing. Anyway, that one does not have a pulser. And I don't think Lincoln even made a box that you could put in line to the pedal that would do that. And so I just for funsies, if I had like, you know, screw around time. I would absolutely learn. I would teach myself how to build like uh, whether it's fully analog or Arduino, it'd be fun to make like a little pulse control box with like a square wave, and, you know, duration and peak and background amps and all that stuff it would be really fun. I don't know how to do it, but I conceptually, I, I think it would be pretty easy. I'm thinking, <laughs> but it's worth I, a yeah, shot, right? <laughs> probably, probably never do it. But yeah, it's, it's just, it's so fun. how like the whole world is like kind of your sandbox if you have the right attitude. Totally. Yeah. So you have some questions that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Feel free. Spotlight's turning around now. (laughs) So yeah, what are the updates on the search for a shop? I know that's been frustrating. Uh, Yeah, it has. We potentially have found a place. We are having our real estate agent work up a proposal. The landlord will see if it works out. It's a little bigger than we wanted. A little more than we wanted to spend, but in the current market, like it, it checks so many boxes. Like it seems like it has enough power. It has AC all over. Those are the biggest things, and it's fairly nice. So, fingers crossed. I'm trying not to get my hopes up because this is the second time we've submitted a proposal. But you know, maybe fingers crossed. <laughs> Could commute time and the the location. What's that look like? It's it's not as close as we wanted. It's maybe 20 minutes for me and. 27 28 for brad it is right by the airport though which is nice because the last fedex overnight uh shipment place is at the airport Mm. and so we get we would basically that would become our fedex now and we'd gain an extra hour of shipping time every day uh how much of your work every week or every month is like picked up or sold to people locally and how much of it is shipped out i'd say 80 to 90 percent is shipped yeah and probably of that of that 90 percent 90 percent of that is shipped overnight so wow i'm very very aware of when my last pickup time is (laughs) um and have you know raced the driver to the pickup point and stuff before so i that would be a big thing for us for sure yeah big time do you have ship station or what do you use to buy postage uh straight through FedEx. I've got a oh, pretty okay. decent account discount. Okay. And so we, we just go through them. Nice. 
but yeah, it's um, forty nine hundred square feet. Of that, I think twenty two hundred is manufacturing floor, and then a bunch of offices and stuff. Um, I think it has a minimum three hundred amps of two forty. But the interestingly enough, that like the supply closet or like supply room for the entire building has a ton of four eighty going into it. So there is the potential that like some point it had 480 and maybe we can tap into that. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, 100% AC, which is just killer. Yeah, I have 480 volt comes into my building and then I run almost everything off of 120 slash 208 volt Y type transformer. But I do run my horizontal bandsaw and my old lathe has a transformer. And so I, I can run those two machines on high voltage, which is pretty cool. And then... Um, you know, you, it's like, not only do you run a smaller conductor to the machines, which saves some amount of money on, you know, your conductors, but sometimes, well, so a smaller conductor can go in a smaller conduit. And when you're doing the work yourself, it, it ends up can be, I wouldn't put too much stock in that for most of us, but like in a bigger space too, the length of your run ends up being a lot, you know, like I used to be in a small little shop that was like 20 by 20 and I hooked up my Haas. Yeah, I go to the electrical supply store. I bought a whatever breaker and I bought the, the whatever gauge. I just would use like SO cable, like the black coated rubber flexible cable stuff, even though that's maybe technically not code, but like, you know, it's a pretty good way to hook up a machine without having to bend conduit and all that crap, a brace and support the conduit. And you just, you do the cord grips on the end so that it's like strain relieved. But anyway, you know, I'd be like 200 bucks or less to hook up a machine when I'd go to the electrical supply store. Now it's like, geez, by the time you buy the EMT conduit and all the fittings and all the conductor and the big breaker, and like, I think, you know, if you had to pay legitimate prices for all that and you didn't have any of those materials kicking around and you're running across your shop, that can be like a thousand dollars a machine or more if you do it yourself. It's right. like, yeah, and it's exactly. a big job it's, to do it yourself. Yeah. So and it does it's thousands of dollars per machine if you're trying to have somebody else do it. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it would be nice. 300 amps would be enough. Like that was kind of our minimum for any size space that was that large. 480 would make it all that much sweeter and and just give us more overhead to grow into. I, I'm sure you've considered this plenty, but I was curious if you had talked at all on air about like, like for me, I always assumed I would never find a building like mine and that I would have to buy like a residential property or something outside of the city and build like a pole barn or something. And that that was something that I kind of figured I'd do eventually because I didn't know what else I would do. And I, the more I think about it, the more I think, I don't know why I ever thought I was a city guy and that that sounds pretty nice, actually. And probably someday I will do that, you know, like if and when I move again and get another space going, it's just like have a building built to my spec outside of a city you know, maybe with some mountain views or something. And that sounds pretty nice to me. I'm sure that there are reasons that you have. How much have you considered that? Uh, there's just no inventory. Like our literally while we were looking at the place yesterday, our real estate agent goes, it's a really good thing you guys aren't trying to buy right now. And we were like, what do you mean? He goes, I just sold or I'm in the middle of selling a 12,000 square foot place that has extensive fire damage and was vandalized by vagrants and i had three offers within the first 24 hours and there was a bidding war over it and it's like cool yeah i'm really glad i'm not buying right now then because i would be paying way over what anything is worth and probably end up in like a terrible shithole so 
yeah, yeah. We're, we're, I, right now we're I guess I'm thinking a little bit more like new new construction, although that obviously they can be expensive and finding land is probably tricky in its own right. And the people who do that work professionally are probably busy and you run into other frustrations too, I'm sure. But yeah, but for yeah. all those reasons, we're just looking to rent for, sure. for right now. More yeah. than likely after this next lease is done, we'll be looking to buy. Like that yeah. feels like probably the right time period, but for sure for right now, we just need to move. Like it's just stifling our yep. growth. Yeah. Um, fair enough. I wanted to ask some about the five axis machine. Sounds like you're planning on getting a Hermola just as soon as you have space to do that. And I know you've talked about that. Some, what are the, what size tool changer did you think you were going to get on that? They are 32, I believe for the C250. And then you can add up to another 80. Eight, I believe. Oh, or that's another eighty, okay. something like that. And, and we, we wouldn't buy that, that immediately. Yeah, you can field install that. So we just add nice. that later on, along with the automation cell. I think a lot about automation. Actually, I wanted to mention I went to the automation show in Detroit back in May, which was a lot of like cobots and robots and different things, and that was a lot of fun to go. And um, yeah, anyway, but I think like. To automate a machine, you know, you could you could just do on something like I have with the Haas, but I think like a lot of the machines that I've considered, if I was going to buy a new machine, it's like, ah, but the tool changer is not big enough is like a common thing that I think like seeing those like, you know, 150, 200 pot tool changers. It's like, I feel like I would need at least like 70 or 100 to really do my product. Uh, maybe, maybe 50 would do it. I need more than I have more than the 30. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think 50 could be really good. Like we have 21 or 22 tools right now and that I have 10 of each of the machines, 10 or 11 of them as standard tools. Uh, but that's aluminum standard tools. So anytime I have to go to stainless, it's like retooling up five to six tools off the, right off the bat. Um, so what do you do to standardize? Like, for instance, I'm pretty good normally, but then occasionally I need like a reamer or something. And I'm like walking about the shop, looking for a collet, looking for a holder I can tear apart. And I feel like that's the part that's really slow. And so like, if I usually, I just have like, you know, another driller or reamer set up outside of the machine with a tool tag that says like, this is a tool 56. And like, if I have that, it's really not that big of a deal to hand load it into the machine. So long as I'm there hand loading the parts anyway. It's not really that big of a deal, but like, what do you do to standardize in your shop, seeing as how everything is so different all the time? So we've standardized, like I said, the first 10 or so tools. So those are tools that we know we use incredibly frequently for aluminum parts. So like it's chamfer mills, roughers, finishers in aluminum in varying sizes. Like I, I have a three eighths rougher, three eighths finisher, quarter inch that's multi-purpose, three sixteenths, uh, eighth. One sixteenth, and then a uh, eighth inch chamfer mill, mm-hmm. and then also my top hat tool. And so those are top hat tool. Oh, yeah, it's a left hand spiral, right hand cut tool, half inch. And so when you oh. take off the top hat and op two, it pushes yeah. the part down. And I think Greg, d- Greg. Koenig developed the first one I ever saw with AB tools. And then the ones we currently buy are from Dave over at Carbide Cutting Tools because we really wanted mm-hmm. one with chip breakers and TSC. And AB tools didn't want to do the TSC, I think it was. Is uh, that, but 
Go for it. Uh, do you just do like a 2D contour offset a little bit from the part or? Uh, 3D adaptive to model top oh, okay. is usually my, my go-to. Uh, yeah. I see. I mean, I've held parts by like 20 thou in soft jaws at 15 inch pounds and I'm still roughing at 200 plus inches a minute and like a 200 thou step over. That's so cool. I, you probably mentioned that, but I don't remember ever hearing about that. That's always a thing. You know, I'm programming... Like if I have to face off a little top hat, then I'll, you know, the carrier stock or whatever from the first operation, then sometimes I have to go around and I have to lightly adaptive it out enough so that my face mill won't like, you know, it starts to sound like foil and then all of a sudden gink and it kind of like gets sucked in and you're busting cutting edges yeah. on your nice face mill. And that's another standardization thing that I think many people won't agree with me on, but we don't use face mills anymore. Yeah. At all. Uh, because the depth tolerance, like our, our standard shop tolerance is plus or minus 2000 everything and very often tighter than that for parts for customers. And so having to deal with mismatch between tools is much more of a pain in the ass. And I find that setting face mills, there's so much more variation dealing with, even with a very good, you know, ASX, just dealing with the variation between that and a three inch or th- a three-eighths finisher, it's just not yeah. worth, especially for the size parts we do. So I just finish all the sense. tops of parts with the same tool. Yeah, yeah. Then you don't have to worry about blending the two. Yeah, that's yeah. funny because like so many of my parts, it's like that, the look that you get from the Mitsubishi face mill, that's just like the look of my parts. It's <laughs> just hard to imagine. I see that people will like face parts with like a small little tool and like, I don't get the best floor finishes from my end mills. Like I'm probably just not programming it the way that you would need to, to get the best floor finishes. But like, I'm just so used to, you know, doing it the way I do it. It's, it's cool to, to see the other ways that people are doing stuff. Yeah. We were big on face mills for the longest time. And then just dealing with that, that up and down of like, Oh, it's a thou deep on this pocket that I finished with the same tool. Like, why is it that? And it's like, Oh, I got to, check my inserts and like maybe one of them's chipped or whatever. And it's like, man, I know if my three eights is good, I know the top's going to be good. I know the outside contour is going to be where it's supposed to be. I don't have to screw around with it anymore. Yeah. Big time. Um, I was going to ask you if you're, if you think you're close to hiring employee number one or what you thought about that lately. I think likely the timeline is going to be five axis and then employee number one. So shop Uh, then five axis probably get kind of settled in the shop enough to get the machine and to get that kind of figured out and then, and then start the search in earnest. Yeah, exactly. Uh, cause I think that we, right now we're not quite there yet, but we're, we're getting towards the upper end of like the maximum amount of parts that Brad and I can produce every day or or rather the maximum value we can produce for the company. I think that a five axis will open up another 25 percent probably uh and then that's when i'd really like to have somebody to come in and and run because there's no way that brad and i are going to run three mills and a five axis there's just no world that i see that working prototype wise do you feel like over the years you've been more machine constrained or like human i mean I, i call it human resources maybe but like just like you know, like labor hours, like the amount of talented labor that you can put into things. Are you more constrained by like, I just never feel like I'm that constrained by my machinery. It's like always like the hours in the week. 
I think it's hours in the week. Right now, I'm starting to butt up against having parts that have six plus ops. And it's like, this would have been a two oh my op five axis part, you know? And like, we just built, finally had Jax finish those yeah. fourth axis trunnions for us. And I think that that's um, going to be like a massive increase just right there. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I'm super happy with it. And, uh, Juan and Jeff did an amazing job finishing that off. It was one of those things where like I kept looking at them every day because I had done the Langstead op and like the op one on them. And then I just looked at them every day for like eight months straight. And then mm-hmm. finally I was like, why am I sitting on this? I have friends with five axis machines. Like, right. why, did, why don't I just send this out? And then I did and did not Looks regret like they it at all. It turned out really good too. I wanted to say not to beat a dead horse too much, but I don't see many people use the Rotovice period, and I don't see that many people use the Rotovice for like any kind of prototyping thing. And just as someone who has it and uses it for all sorts of stuff, it's just such an underrated tool. It does some similar things to what yours does. I think the Rotovice has a little bit higher distance between the center line and the jaws. Obviously, the Rotovice only clamps in the one orientation. You can't take a piece of stock that's already clamped and then neatly pick it out and rotate it exactly 90 and set it back down with the same datum. So you can't do the same things for prototyping purposes. But if you just need to do a three-axis part plus like a couple extra tool orientations around one axis, it's pretty infallible. And then what I love about it is like in CAM, once you programmed one part, like I have it on 96 millimeter pull studs, so I can load it in the machine in under a minute. And it's already four vices set up in the machine rigidly and trammed with a known work set. Like, think about how long it take you to load four vices. And then on top of that, you program one part and all you got to do is cam pattern it to two or four positions. And it, like, it, it's just really, really powerful. So I know it's not the same thing, but I just want to mention that for all the people listening who haven't given enough thought to the Rotovice. It's my very favorite Jay Pearson product by a long margin. Yeah, you make such a good case for it. Like every time I see you using it, I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Like for us, I kind of see it as when we had a pallet changer machine and we're using it for prototyping. Like we do such low volume that I feel like I'd end up having one jaw set just wear out due to use. And then the other three would be like brand new and constantly closed. Uh, But I I feel like if you're doing any kind of short run production, like it it seems like a no brainer for that kind of workflow. Yeah. And like a pallet changer machine that has good ergonomics so that it's not in your way when you're not using it would be one thing. But it seemed like that one was very much in your way and you're just tripping over it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was a fantastic first machine. And we learned a lot on it and we learned a lot of what we didn't want in a second machine. So, it, yeah. yeah, it was great all around. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I uh, I had on a list of things I wanted to talk about a number of things, but one thing I did want to talk about is how uh, since I hired a new guy a couple weeks ago, a guy named Trevor, he's doing great. Really happy with the fit and the way that we're relating and things are going really good. And I'm trying to I'm trying to challenge myself to be you know better about being an employer and setting someone up for success. And there was, uh, I think there was a John Grimsmo thing on bomb podcast. And he said something, something to the effect that he was like the only one who programmed parts in the shop or something. And it just kind of like, uh, you know, 
people got to choose what's right for them and whatever. But I just thought like, man, I don't ever want to have that big of an operation and be the only person who can program. And like, I don't, it was a reminder because I had an employee for a year and a half and we would be busy and there wasn't time or we weren't busy. And I would feel like, you know, sort of this like anxiousness, like I needed to make sure that I was like, you know, getting some value, like, oh, do a project that's helpful for this or something. And this time around, I'm trying to challenge myself more. Some of the the ideas from like the gold rat stuff, because I read the goal and really liked that. And then read most of critical chain too, and discussed some of these books with Uriel and other people, but like the, just that idea that like a local optimum is a mirage and, or I think in critical chain, he talks about, he, I really want to dwell on this more and reread that passage, but like he says, like you could optimize for cost or you could optimize for throughput. And then he starts making this argument that if you optimize for throughput, you're really optimizing for cost at a system level. And that's pretty interesting. But anyway, so like with an employee, um, I realized that it's like, I started giving him like projects to do, like, you know, the scissor lift needs some maintenance or like work on the lounge. You know, we got caught up on orders and stuff. And then I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, those really aren't the goal or the point of the business. And they cost a lot of money and it takes some time for me to manage those projects. But like here I am throwing like hundreds of dollars, like install some more airlines. That would be nice. Well, there goes a couple hundred bucks and like, and you know, like fix the scissor lift, which it did need some repairs and he did an excellent job. But like the last thing I was like, you know, it's actually literally cheaper to have him sit and do fusion tutorials and to spend time teaching him. That's like literally cheaper over the course of the week. And it is a massively better use of my time. And like, if you think about the gold rat stuff where he talks about like, well, like in the goal, you know, like the managers who are hassling the guys to like push a broom or do something, you know, be useful. And the biggest sin of course, is if you continue to process material and buy more material just to make inventory so that your local metric for your machine uptime looks good. But instead, instead of spending not that much money on material, you'd, you'd spend a fortune on material and just tied it up in inventory. Right. So thinking about that as a manager and it's like, what I really want is like a couple months from now, really as soon as possible, I want normal day-to-day production to just flow whether or not I'm there because like, uh, he's got a fusion license, all of the setup sheets are made. I spent a lot of time the last year making setup sheets and like all that stuff is documented and he knows how to like inspect parts for tolerance and then also how to tweak tool paths. And then eventually when I design the next assembly, I can actually hand him parts and he can do the programming based on examples that he's seen. And like, that's really the goal. And obviously I do want to like do these other projects and stuff over time, but like, they're not really the goal. And so that's been a big thing for me is trying to challenge myself to like do better with that. Uh, it's really hard as a business owner to, to like be paying someone, which is one of your biggest expenses and then run out of like obviously necessary work for them. And then to be chill about it, it's very difficult. I found, (laughs) and I'm like trying to be better about that. Like what's the actual point here? Right. So before I I ask the real questions about the employee, you mentioned shop projects. Did you ever rehang the door and put a doorknob on the one that was messed up as of last year? Yeah. So my previous employee, Zach, did that. I think shortly after we did that podcast, we ordered a knob on the internet and put that on, which was kind of necessary because there's two bathrooms. There's like the murder bathroom and then there's like the super murder bathroom. And so, yeah, we needed a knob on the murder bathroom because we sure didn't want to use the super murder bathroom. And it's a low enough priority. Choices like these. 
we haven't we haven't done too much work to that yet we will and it'll be nice but it's all in good time you know like everybody getting their getting their healthy paycheck and having like stimulating and interesting work to do and you know contributing value to our customers is definitely a higher priority so totally so where did you find your new employee how did you look uh what background does he have how are you going about teaching him we um my so something i didn't mention <clears throat> is that in the last i don't know year and a half two years i made a new friend and he is i would say probably my best friend and so he's like 12 years older than me i think his name's sean he's a he runs a software company in town with a bunch of people but he used to be computer programmer and so he and i ride bikes a couple times a week and he, he does some hobby frame building <clears throat> in his garage and it's just like the best friendship because I actually get to be of service and helpful to him with certain metalworking things and machining questions and CAD stuff, which I love being helpful and being able to share. But then he's got all this business acumen and he's, you know, really smart about like managing people and running a company and having vision. And it's just like tremendously, I would say, I would like to believe it's mutually beneficial. That's been a, just like a really big lift for me in my life, not to mention just in general, as you get older, it's always hard. You know, people commonly say that it's just hard to like make good friends and find good friendships and stuff as you get older. I think most people struggle with that. So it's just been like a real blessing and I'm very grateful for that relationship and, and all the things that I've gotten out of that. So like, you know, some of this computer programming stuff, you know, he, he kind of dusts it off and helps me figure stuff out and whatever. <laughs> but anyway, he helped me write a job description a while ago. It was actually for like an internship. And we were trying to reel in like an engineering student or something from like, I mean, you're familiar with some of these programs, but this was, I think we submitted it eventually to an actual like engineering school. It was like product development or something. It was called product development engineering, but they had to do three internships of like four months apiece before they could graduate. And we did all the like paperwork and I finally emailed it and submitted it. And then they're like, oh, well, if you're not a degreed engineer, we can't have them work with you. And on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Okay, what? screw you guys. But on the other hand, I'm just thinking about it. I'm like, if you just take a look at what I do in my business, it's like CAD CAM, product development, marketing, you know, like machining. It's all these things. Like I'm like specking, I'm specking hardware off the shelf. I'm mixing that with stuff that I designed in CAD. There's laser cut parts. There's a few 3D printed parts. We're dealing with outside vendors. Like this is hands-on manufacturing. And like, no, I'm not a degreed engineer. That's what they get from the coursework. I'm supposed to be a compliment to that. I'm giving them the real world practical experience that they're not getting in the classroom. Like just right. it was really frustrating. Maybe less insulting. of us would get garbage prints if more <laughs> people spent time with people like you. Yeah. But you know, whatever. <laughs> it was it felt very condescending, the person who said that to me. But anyway, so I had that job description that we put a couple hours into. I had that kicking around as like a Google Doc. And then over the summer, I started to feel like I was closer to like, maybe I just need to really hire somebody for real again. You know, it's a big commitment, right? Making somebody a full-time job offer. And, but anyway, and then a guy that I had met, you know, sort of acquaintance friend that I had met through bike polo in town. He, I could see from his Instagram stories that he was unemployed. I told him to come by the shop for a tour. And then we talked a little bit and that was it. I hired him after we talked once or twice and it's been a really good fit. He's very curious and interested and very sharp and he's learning stuff pretty quickly. He worked in a machine shop for like six years, but it was more of a, like a, I think it was more of like a prototype shop that did like 
trade show things or like, you know, it was like wood router next to some VMCs next to paint booths and other stuff and prop shop, you might call it, I don't know. But anyway, he didn't get to do much like of the CNC, you know, CAD cam, any of that stuff, but he had trammed vices and he's been around it for years. He's pretty talented welder. He's really good with angle grinder and working with his hands. And then when I show him CAD cam stuff, he's very engaged and interested. And I'm trying to have a different approach and learn, you know, how to like really on-ramp somebody and give them the opportunity to like excel. Cause I know it's just hard for business owners to like do that. But like, that's just like, where do I want to be in three months? It's like, I want, I want the force multiplier. I don't want someone who just takes, you know, like some days we just have to like load parts in the haws and pack boxes. But like a lot of days I need a smart problem solver who knows where to find all the tools in the toolbox, so to speak. And I don't really have that much like simple repetitive work. It's mostly, I would say like at least half of the work that I have for somebody is like reasonably complicated stuff. So how much time are you giving him to dedicate to fusion or, or learning during the week? Fusion hasn't been a whole lot yet, but I, I've been emphasizing to him that we're going to, I'm going to buy him a computer if he doesn't get one set up himself and that but all the, he, he's saying he has something he can bring in. And I'm just going to buy him a fusion license right away just so we can collaborate on stuff because he has like education license or something. But like, I'm realizing pretty quickly, like we just, he needs to be able to like look at, well, he needs to be able to do a setup from the setup sheet notes and then open up the cam files and like watch the simulation. And then as it runs, listen and kind of compare. And I think that'll be a really quick way to get him up to speed. And like, if he doesn't have access to my fusion account, like it's just going to be way more it's like 500 bucks a year, like in the scheme of like all of the insurance and machine payments and building mortgage, like, like I wouldn't pay 500 bucks a year to make this guy useful. Like, come on. <laughs> right. So it's a, a silly amount of money to, to not spend for sure. Yeah. And so anyway, and I sit down with him here and there to like do a CAD cam thing with him. Definitely a fair amount of like machine operator stuff. Like it doesn't take that long to learn the Haas control, but like when we're doing on the rare occasion, we're doing probing, like I'll have him hit all the buttons or like simple, simple G code edits. Like I used to program my face mill with coolant and I realized that was totally unnecessary and just created a lot of mist. So whenever I notice coolant on a face mill, unless I need to repost the whole thing, I'll just delete the M8. And I showed him how to do that. And I'll do a lot of times like op one, op two will be a M98 sub program call. So when you finish all the op ones, you could go to the sub program or on the Haas, you could just type M98 down and then you could go to the sub program call and I put a block skip in front of it so you can skip it. So I had to explain how all that stuff works. And he was pretty sharp. He picked that up pretty fast. And now, like, when he's doing a new setup, he'll go to the end of the program and look for M98 to see if it has one or not. And just trying to, yeah, I don't know, just trying to get all that stuff into his head. Or, like, I, the way I do my standard tool library, I have numbers on the Haas. You can go up to 200. It register, it's, saves all those. So I've explained to him how to use the current commands table and all that stuff so you can you can take tool 35 out of the machine and put in tool 66 and not crash the machine, <laughs> which is a little scary to hand off to somebody, but it's working really well. So awesome. That's great. Yeah. I think that that's something I've been giving a lot of thought to is like, how do you train someone from nothing or from very little to being able to produce profit for the business? You know? Yeah. And what's the right way to do that? And how do you give them the experience they actually need? You know, there's a couple things that makes me think of my good friend, Sean says like, 
the right kind of person that you want to invest in, it should feel like they're pulling the success out of the like opportunity. And I think he also says, I heard somewhere, I think it was from him, like, uh, you don't want to be pushing on a rope. And I love that. I love saying that because <laughs> it's funny to yeah, me, but I like, like it's really true that like, it's something I say all the time now, but like, I've really learned in the last couple of years that like people are different and people have just different like aptitudes and interests and the way that they think and walk through the world. And like, you know, like if you're gonna, like when you hire, you need to just like, if, if you need somebody to be able to do that, you need to select somebody who's like. Sean also says GWC gets it, wants it, has the capacity to deliver it. That's from some like best-selling book or something, but like it needs to be all three. So like, you know, like they might have the capacity and they might have, they might get it. They might understand, but like, do they want it? Maybe they don't have the capacity to do it. And so like when you have that right person, and I feel like I'm pretty lucky with this new hire that like, he's, he's pretty interested in like, I'll like rattle off a bunch of complicated uh, stuff like I'll be explaining how like my my template infusion creates these G10 probe offset things. So like it'll it'll I have like a like a saved master work coordinate system for the orange vice, and then I have one that gets rewritten every cycle. And so like I'll I'll overwrite the one with the other at the beginning of the cycle, and then I'll reprobe for X or Y or whatever, and then I'll run it. And like every time it does that, and I'll be explaining this like kind of complicated stuff. And he'll like seemingly get it and comprehend it and then reference that later and show that he understood what I was explaining. And I feel like, you know, if I have somebody like that who showed up to work for me, I want to like, I want to run with that, you know, like that's an opportunity to like, really it's, um, uh, like just kind of point the fire hose right at him and just, and then let him tell me when it's too much. But like right now it's just like, let's just give him as much as I can give him and Talked to Juan from Jacked Manufacturing on the phone a couple weeks ago, and he was saying when he hires somebody new, like it'd just be like his buddy for a while. Like we just gotta like we gotta get him through this. We gotta like you know get him up to speed on that. And I think that's for the kind of thing that I want out of somebody. I realize now like that's just kind of what I have to do. Is like I have to kind of inundate them, make sure that they can handle that and that they're still interested. And if they are, and like use that as like a kind of stress test it like if if they aren't interested or if they can't hack it when i'm like willing to give them like a lot of time every week then like maybe that's not the right fit yeah for sure no there was an interview i listened to with mr beast mm -hmm. and he said that the way that he hired i don't remember what the job title is but it was like the person his second in command basically is he hired someone and just said you're going to be my shadow for a year. And like, we don't have that kind of time as shop owners, but that whole thing of he's like, you're just going to do everything I do for a year straight. And then by the end of it, if you're not thinking like me, you know, you're not in this, but mm -hmm. he basically trained like this person basically thinks like him now because they spent such a close year together of him just emulating everything that Jimmy did. And now he's, you know, Jimmy can trust him implicitly because he knows oh, this guy's going to think just like me or we're going to have very similar outcomes no matter what I give him. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think like there's a lot to be said for just like invest the time because really it's like employee is so expensive, but if they know how to, like I think about in my business, we just have like a ridiculous list of expenses and there are a lot of them are very big expenses. But then miraculously, 
we're moving forward and growing at a pretty wild clip. And that's just because like I saw an opportunity for a product. I speculated that I could make money on it. I spent the time to develop it. Like that whole cycle of value creation, it was like, see an opportunity, study it, develop something, test it in the market, really, you know, follow through with some like, you know, try and make people happy and deliver on time and, you know, refine and polish the product and whatever else it is. And like, that's where the value is really created. Like, yeah, we make parts and the parts need to be good. And, uh, I don't know, we do some other things, but like, really it's like, that's the value creation cycle. That's the most key to what we do. And I'm the only one who can do it. And so if we're busy and I, there's opportunity cost cause I can't do any of that. Cause I'm just packing boxes and hand loading in the Oz. Well then, yeah, it'd be good to get somebody in who can do that for me. But what would be even better is if the person can save me from packing boxes and hand loading parts in the machine, but then inevitably, whenever there's downtime, they can help me do that higher level stuff too, at least some of it more, you know, more of it. And then when we get into two, three, four, five, six employees, and I'm not sure that I'm ever going to get there, but like, if I did, then there's like seats on the bus and you want maybe different kinds of people, like somebody who's just happy to have a job and like be reliable. And they're not so interested in like learning probing and macros and, you know, going to IMTS. Cause that doesn't really, but like, they're excited to just like have a steady job and they're honest and reliable. I got seats on the bus for somebody like that when I get up to like six people or something. But I think for like my number two, like the person directly under me in my kind of company, I think like I need somebody who's like really, really interested in learning a lot of technical problem solving and doing a lot of like challenging stuff. Right. Yeah. You are a jack of all trades in your business and you need somebody to match that kind of level of knowledge. 60, 80% of that, something like that. Totally. Well, we've kind of already gone over shop news and new things. So I think it's down to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. First of which is, what did you research this week? I just got the Peter D. Smith FANUC macro programming book. So I cracked into that a little bit last night. I'm really excited about that. Um, I did write a macro or so, you know, for the puma lathe like when it passes through that z variable into the bar feeder bar exchange sub program now it has error checks so that like my z variable might be between let's say like 10 millimeters and like 100 millimeters but i made it so that if it's less than five it throws one alarm if it's more than 100 it throws another alarm and if the z variable wasn't on the g65 program call then it throws a different alarm and I tested all those and they all work. And so that was pretty cool. And, but I got the whole book and I'm excited to learn more about it. I had an idea for macro thing I could write for the Haas where in Fusion, I mostly have the tool holders and the stickouts modeled. And I realized it wouldn't be, it probably wouldn't be that far. And I think I've seen people do things kind of like this to have it where at the tool list at the top of the program, it outputs what it thinks the gauge line of every tool is. And then to have like a little macro sub program that, runs every time you hit cycle start on a mill program and it just checks that they're within like some tolerance you know like a hundred thousandths or something and otherwise it throws an alarm and then maybe some way where you can bypass that if you think you know better like you know you ran out of the one holder and you had to use a longer gauge line holder and you just want to get the parts made but anyway i was thinking about that and i'm like yeah that's something i should write so that's a post-processor edit too to get the post-processor to format the data a certain way but anyway that's something i've been researching and 
real excited about that. Happy to talk to anybody who wants to share cool macros or whatever. Yeah, ma- macros are so cool and they that is such a deep rabbit hole you have entered. Really looking forward to seeing where you go with it. How how far do you get to get into that with the work that you do? I imagine most of the time you don't like you're just making parts, right? Yeah, no if I'm messing with macros, it's to do something in the machine typically that's not for one of our parts. Like I think the last one I wrote was just like a little 10 line macro because I was cleaning out the umbrella tool changer. And so I had it uh, count up tool numbers and change tools. And I had the coolant line spring and then it would hold for a couple seconds and then change the next one. And then when when it got to 21 loop and just keep doing that. And that was like, you know, a little five minute project, but I've done some, my last job, the last thing I did before I left there is we ran these production titanium jobs and I created a whole tool life macro that it would at the big, big beginning of the program, increment all of the tools and then jump into the sub program and check all the tools for their tool life. And then issue a 3006 alarm, which wouldn't stop the program, but would be a, a message. Yeah. Uh, and and or like it's it's a soft stop yeah basically and so like i wrote all of that because we had no tool life tracking on that machine and so that was a a fun project that's so cool yeah i i want to do more of it because it is a lot of fun and it it keeps you keeps that brain muscle loose so i'd love to do more of that what have what's been in your browser history this week Ooh, a lot of it has been like oh what would utilities cost and what this cost at the new place um i also just picked up a what is vision engineering mantis microscope which is a microscope with a single big screen on it or it's not a screen it's it's a still a lens based system but there's no eye cups like my biggest problem is we have this auchenlom stereo zoom 4 i think is that Brad and I use and our IPDs are different. So every time I walk up to it, basically I'm readjusting it. And I'm like, this is stupid. And I, we are doing more and more tiny parts that I need to either deburr under the microscope or double check tiny blends, you know, between a 16 thou end mill and a 30 thou end mill under the microscope. And so I, I found these, I think I saw it first on Danny Rudolph's Instagram. Um, talked to him a little bit about it. He didn't like it for a couple reasons that didn't really matter to my use case. Mm-hmm. And they're usually like three or four grand. And I found one on eBay for nine hundred bucks. And the guy ended up randomly being local to me. And so I met up with him today and picked it up. And I'm looking for. I'm gone the next two weeks on business trips. But when I get back, I'm really looking forward to setting it up. And if I like it, we're going to buy a second one so that Brad and I no longer share a microscope at all. That's great. I still haven't even bought that little, the one that everybody has, the like $100 Amazon one with the little LCD. And regularly, I'll like walk over to where I keep the tweezers and I'm like cursing myself. I'm like trying to get a metal sliver out. I'm like, God dang it. <laughs> like looking at some <laughs> I, little I have like one a, of those, the, yeah. the little LCD ones. And I'm not the biggest fan. Like I think yeah. that for some things they're okay, but their depth of field is so flat. 
that it's mm-hmm. really, really, especially on parts, it's really, really hard to discern features and discern like what yeah. I'm actually looking for. Having a, I would highly recommend getting a stereo microscope, no matter what it is. Those stereo zooms are fantastic. And if you're the only, only one using them, oh. I want to say I picked up mine for three or 400 bucks with like a stand that was probably worth a thousand dollars on its own. And like it was, it's a good enough design that I think Leica or Lights ended up buying the rights to it and produced it for an additional 10 years past when Bausch and Lomb wow. did. Yeah. So, yeah. It's one of those things like when I first bought the microscope, I think we used it maybe once a month and now we're like every day or every other day. And on those, mm-hmm. the Mantis ones, there's still IPD adjustment, but it's just a little knob on the side that takes a split second to adjust to where you need it. You know, it's like a focus knob almost. And then you're there. You're like, okay, cool. And, you know, you're not having to push your face up against anything. It's got a big wide monocle basically that you can look at like a screen and work under and all of that. So, Fingers crossed. We like it. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, yeah, I think like um, that experience of whether it's overhead lights in the shop or like I just installed the new LED fixture inside of my lathe so that I can see inside of that dark cavern or um, my cross, my microscopy. Is that <laughs> my? <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. Microscopy. Anyway. Uh, yeah, like that's that's a big deal. When I visited Jeff at Akluma in uh, Colorado, and I I got one of his flashlights, and I started carrying it around with me, and I've never carried a flashlight before, and I was like, oh, who cares? You know, it's flashlight, and like I got that on my phone, and like I couldn't have been more wrong. It's like that that ability to just be able to see things, and it's just like I can I can have the thought that I wish I could see better, and then I have a light shining on it in like half of a second or something at all times like i carry it like night and day and one of the most common uses is like i'm walking the dog at night and i gotta like find her craps so that i can bag them up you know (laughs) but like just that feeling of like no i can see i know that i'll be able to see and then like when you don't have it with you and you can't see it's so frustrating so then like when i'm like pulling a metal sliver out of my hand or trying to like look at the the edge of a piece of carbide or something and i can't see it that well like I know exactly that this is my fault for not like having the tools that I ought to have. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny you say that about a flashlight because I bought one of Ben's Freelux, his flashlights nice. like years ago. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I really want this. I don't know that I'll use it. And then, yeah, now I'm, I'm the same way. It's like I got my my light. I've got my knife. I use them probably equally, if not the light 10 yeah. times as much as the knife. Exactly. And I, I couldn't imagine not having it with me. Yeah, doing like, um, I love the flashlight, but when you're doing machine repairs and like even automotive repairs and fussy stuff like that, the flashlight is rarely the right tool for the job. And so I would really like to get something like the Freelux. And I got to meet Ben at the Insta Machinist meetup at IMTS. That was cool. Awesome. Well, the last question I ask then is what are the things you're doing to be a better person, leader, employee, employer, what have you? None of us are perfect. We're all working on stuff. What are you working on? I was, I saw this one coming. I was thinking about this. I think definitely a big part of this is like just with the new employee trying to do that well. I never was a manager at any of my jobs. I never even had any real jobs. You know, I worked as like, like I delivered sub sandwiches on my bicycle and I worked in a bike shop and other kinds of part time phony jobs. You know, I mean, 
not to belittle anyone in those career paths, but anyway, I never really had like, like real serious full-time job that much in my life. So like, I don't know that much about that and I'm trying to do that better. And one thing that I didn't mention is just like, maybe sometimes I treat everybody else like I don't mean to be condescending or insulting, but maybe I treat them a little bit like they're incompetent or like I micromanage them or I kind of spoon feed them stuff when like they're probably smart enough to figure it out. And so I've been really trying to do that better with Trevor now where like I'll give him kind of too little information a lot of times and I'll be like, just let me know. But like, you got this, you'll figure this out. And (laughs) maybe sometimes he feels like he's off the deep end, but it's like really nice. Cause like it generally always turns out good enough, I would say. And then it's just like, you know, you're learning stuff better when someone's not standing over your shoulder, just telling you every single thing, but you had to kind of like the, the easy CAD two software on our fiber laser. Like I spent all of like a minute or two teaching him how to use that. And he's gotten the rest of it from the setup notes that we had. And like, I'm sure he knows that software better now than, cause he's had to troubleshoot certain things on his own and figure it out. And like, so any that's just something I'm leaning into is like trying to learn how to be a better manager and and macros. Dude, that's, you have got to get your laser on Lightburn. I know we do get have Lightburn actually, but we have all these <laughs> legacy programs on EasyCAD too that we spent all this time setting up. Oh. And it's not really a sunk cost fallacy. It's just like we don't necessarily always have those illustrator files ready to go, or it's like it's just fully documented in EasyCAD, but then I got you because we, yeah. Anyway, yeah. No, it's funny that you say that about Trevor because, like, I found a very similar thing when Brad came on full time. Like, he's a very competent machinist, but had not worked in like a prototype shop. And I found, I think maybe it's just a certain personality type response to that. Well, but I just started giving him harder and harder parts that might be on the limit of his skills and i would wait until he would start getting a little bit frustrated and make sure that like he didn't get too frustrated but i wanted to Mm -hmm. make sure that like he kind of you know had to struggle through a little bit and and learn something and and it seemed like you know very quickly he was much much better at taking on more varied prototype work which was fantastic i think i think if i was in the other i think if the roles were reversed i think i would really enjoy a job that like had me feeling kind of like I was a little bit like they threw me in the water and I was like figuring things. I think I would enjoy that more. And I think the kind of person that I ultimately need would probably enjoy that more. And it seems to be like, I talked to him some about this and I think for the most part, we're on the same page that it's working pretty well. I think, unless he's too polite to tell me what he really thinks, but I think it's going pretty well. (laughs) And there's a, it's kind of like, like just giving him lots of opportunities to learn and trying to like set kind of high expectations. And like, that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. Nice. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to join me again. It was great to get to catch up and and hear a little bit more and dive more into all the things that have happened. Yeah. It's an honor to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And yeah, thanks for the service that you provide to the community. I shout this out to people all the time. Thanks to Josh Hacko for pushing, uh, guilting me into becoming a patron when he was on. And he said that anyone who doesn't become a patron is a theft and they're a thief and they're, <laughs> they're stealing. And he was right. And so I'm going to say the same to everybody else out there. If you're not a patron, but you listen every week, you're stealing, you're taking food out of Dylan's <laughs> mouth. Okay. So 
anyway, no, but it's really great though, because you get to obviously people who listen, get it, but like, just, you get to like hear about everybody's experience and then kind of reflect that back on your own life. And, you know, maybe you realize that you're not on exactly the right career path and you, you switch from production to prototyping or you start your own shop or whatever, like that perspective that you get from hearing other people's stories is like endlessly and ridiculously valuable. Plus it's just fun to listen to. So as always, I appreciate you making the show. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for the kind words and thank you all for listening. Thanks to the Patreon members who do make the show possible and I will be back next week.